Well, welcome uh, to this event. Uh, maybe you came to the worship beforehand, maybe not. So glad you're here again uh, tonight for this event. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Matt Schneider, by the way. I'm one of the uh, ministers here at the Advent. Uh, and we're, uh, this is kind of a stab in a new direction for events after the 5 o'clock for suppers. Um, doing something like this where we bring a little bit of programming. Um, and we're, so we're taking advantage of the fact that Zach just came out with this new book um, to talk about it a little bit. But before we talk about the event, uh, just a little bit of housekeeping. Like I said, we, we're going to have some ongoing events like this either after uh, church on Sunday. But there are some other kind of artistic and culturally related events uh, that we do. If you want to be on the email listserv about that, uh, we have a sign-up sheet, which Brandon Bennett is pointing at. It's on that table back there, is that what you're saying? Um, if you want to have more information about similar events like this coming up in the future. And also, we welcome uh, some donations to help offset the cost. That's what that basket is on the, the center table. If you want to drop a dollar or 20 in there to help us offset the cost of the event, we welcome that. Um, if you're visiting the Advent for the first time, uh, know that we have church services every Sunday at 7.39, 11 a.m., and also 5 o'clock, 5 p.m., which we just had. Um, and if you uh, want more information about the Advent, on that table over there, there are some magazines, which are good, uh, give you a good sort of sense of what the Advent's all about. And if you need a Bible, by the way, there are Bibles on that table, too. Feel free to take one. A uh, big thank you tonight to Sally Goings, who helped coordinate the food if we give her a round of applause. Anyone else who volunteered uh, and helped her out? And uh, if anybody brought some side dishes, we thank you as well. We'll have a brief conversation with Zach, uh, and I'll open it up for some Q&A if you want to ask some questions of him about the book. Uh, he's going to do a couple readings from the book, uh, and we'll just leave some ample time afterwards. If you want to stick around and eat more food, uh, you can do that. And also, we have copies of the book for sale on that back table under uh, the portrait of John Carpenter back there. Brandon is uh, taking care of the sales if you want to buy one and get Zach to sign the book. Well, Zach, let's get started. All right. Uh, why, don't, you know, why don't we just, for those of us who don't know you too well, can you just uh, sort of give us the, the sort of brief history of Zach Hicks and where you're coming from and what led you here to the Advent before we start talking about the book? Born and raised in Hawaii. I, I know some people don't yet know that, but that's where I grew up. Um, and I thought until I was about 18 that I was Japanese. <laughs> all my class members were Japanese, and uh, I ate rice every day, because that's just what you do in Hawaii when you're Japanese and not Japanese. Um, and I just, I had an, a pretty kind of, from my perspective, a normal upbringing in the church with great parents that just loved Jesus and taught me the love of Jesus. And I'd say my love for worship and worship services began simply because as a little kid I looked up and saw my mom truly engaging with what was happening in a worship service from her heart. And those images I have of a little child watching my mom weep, you know, when she's singing hymns and pray prayers meaningfully. Uh, was deeply impactful. Uh, I think probably is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is because her heart 
sort of transplanted into my heart. Um, and when I was in about 10th grade, I received a call to ministry. It was a real charismatic experience where I was reading my Bible and God was basically saying to me, non-audibly but clearly, hey, I want you for pastoral ministry. And so I always thought, hey, I'm going to go and do what pastors do, which means go to a seminary, get a seminary degree, and then go preach and visit people in the hospital and, and be a, a local pastor. And then right around that same time, God started cultivating musical gifts in me. So I decided, hey, as I prepare, because I don't know what I'm going to do for my undergrad, I'll just study music. And so I did that. And then ended up in this weird world where I started leading music in churches. Um, and always felt like a second-class pastor, or actually not a pastor. I felt like, I'm the music guy, and there's the pastor. And even while I was going through seminary, that was my job. Um, and I started feeling this vocational angst in, in the fact that those two things weren't the same thing that I knew. I always wanted to be a pastor, and yet I'm stuck in this sort of musical job. Sometime down that road, God sort of hit me over the head and said, you dummy, uh, you are already a pastor. What you're doing is shaping and guiding people's lives in the way that you plan and lead worship services. And that insight kind of was the, the seed for the book. It was the seed for um, the way I thought of myself. And so this book is very personal to me. It's not, a, not at all a, an autobiography, but it feels autobiographical because it's been a journey of reflection on the fact that I've realized as I've ministered through music and planning and leading worship services, I've been doing pastoral ministry and having countless conversations with a lot of other people in my field who are waking up to that same thing, but don't have a, a way to describe what that is. And that's why I wrote uh, the book. It's very personal in that sense, so there's lots of fun stories about my own life. Well, it's called The Worship Pastor. Who's the target audience? For yeah. The, so who the target, are the secondary audiences? Too? Right. The target audience actually isn't you, which I understand if you don't uh, read or buy the book, because the primary target is for people in my profession. Therefore, it's not going to be a bestseller. In fact, I told people while it was coming out, I'd be surprised. You know, if someone would come up to me and say, hey, I'm looking forward to your book. I'm like, you and my mom are going to buy my book. And I'm so grateful that there are two people out there that are going to buy it. Um, and so the target really are uh, young worship leaders in all kinds of churches. It's really trying to shoot widely and speak to a lot of different types of Christian traditions and music leaders, music pastors in those traditions. Um, and then the kind of second ring really is are the, the people that want to think more deeply about worship in general. And for the readership in this room, if you do read it, I think what you'll find is um, – a deeper sense of what worship is and does. And my hope is actually that a lot of regular church-going people will read it and become dissatisfied, maybe, with uh, their music leader <laughs> in a good way. Which right now is you. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, that's what I kind of say at the end of the book is like, you know, if people in my church read this book, they'd start to see all the holes in, in me and my ministry, uh, and they'd probably hold me to a higher standard, which – is a scary thing, but thankfully we're a gracious place. So. Well, I've, I haven't read the whole thing, but I read four chapters that you recommended in preparation for today, and I gotta say it's really good. Um, uh, not just saying that. And I think that if you read it not as a pastor, um, you'll get something out of it. And you have uh, your. Let's do one of the readings. You have a, a first reading ready for us. Yeah, this uh, this comes from a section. It's actually it'll be cool because you'll hear some of my story. 
and my wife's story that you may not know. But it also gives a lot of insight into what worship is and does and what I hope and probably what Matt hopes and what, what the other sort of clergy hope that worship does for you. And it's in the chapter. I was going to say, if someone has a copy of the book, what page are we looking at? I'm on page 122, and it's in the chapter called The Worship Pastor as Caregiver. Uh, and I might just say the book is sort of structured with various vignettes, some of them more saucy than others. But it basically are various pictures of what a worship pastor is. Uh, the worship pastor is church lover, corporate mystic, doxological philosopher, disciple maker, prayer leader, theological dietitian, war general, watchful prophet, missionary, artist chaplain, caregiver, my favorite mortician, emotional shepherd, uh, liturgical architect, curator, and tour guide. And so this comes and from... Failure. And, and failure. failure, right. That's the best one. It's the last one. Um, so this comes from the worship pastor's caregiver. My wife, Abby, had just given birth to our first baby, and we were enjoying a night, enjoying a night out as new parents at a Denver Nuggets game when Abby noticed that something was wrong with her eyesight. She had mentioned concerns about her vision several months back, and we chalked it up to one of the many changes that the body goes through during pregnancy. The blind spot she discovered at the basketball game, however, could not be ignored. A doctor examined her eyes, and after giving a concerned look, sent us to a specialist. The next day, the doctor gave us the news that Abby had a cancerous tumor growing inside her eye. We needed to act immediately, and suddenly our world had been turned upside down as we pondered the possibilities of imminent death and the thought of our newborn son growing up without a mom. Abby underwent radiation, which ultimately stopped the cancer, but the trauma of the ordeal left my precious wife mostly blind in one eye. During the painful time in the life of my young family, during this painful time in the life of my young family, I was leading worship every week in our church. On Abby's first Sunday back in church, as she was feeling an acute sense of her grief over the loss of her eyesight, we sang the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. For my wife, the song immediately took on a new meaning. It deeply comforted her. Abby shared her epiphany with me after the service. She said, I don't need my vision as long as God can be it for me. As her husband, I cannot cry as I write this, and I cannot cry every time I think of and sing that hymn now. As the worship planner and leader that week, I will admit that I was oblivious to the potential ministry of the double meaning of that hymn that, would, that it would have for my wife. But Abby's comments that day helped me to realize that worship wasn't a heavenly pause on her earthly grief, nor was worship a means of helping her get over her grief. Worship was helping her to grieve. It was giving her language to her tears. It gave her scattered prayers, a script to follow. In the service, the Holy Spirit was applying pastoral care through the songs I led and the prayers I prayed. For the first time in my life, I understood in a very personal way that a worship leader has pastoral ministry of giving care. Uh, a theologian and pastor named Will Willimon says, In worship, all the community's concerns meet and coalesce. Corporate worship is where we encounter God, ourselves, our judgment, and our grace. It is where our most fundamental human problems and concerns are directly addressed by God and his word. Worship is the nucleus of all pastoral care. 
The services we plan and lead can be thought of much like a regimen of vitamins for God's people, the body of Christ. Worship begins caring for us long before the crisis of sickness strikes by building up the immune system of our souls. Long before people are sitting in a pastor's office seeking counsel, they have likely been sitting in the pews for weeks, months, and even years. The services that we plan and lead have been offering them words and images of meaning and hope that can speak to their souls. Here's how one pastor put it. The minister has a clear duty to counsel the ill and dying, but he should first have helped create a community with a religio-cultural view of the meaning of illness and death. The difficulty with much of pastoral counseling today is that more time is spent discussing the tools of counseling than in the more challenging process of developing the structure of meanings that should constitute the context for counseling. Worship sets our individual problems in a cosmic context where we consider ultimate things. Worship reminds us of the spiritual realm of good and evil, of death and resurrection, and the hope of future healing on the other side of present pain. I remember talking to a hurting woman in my congregation who, after having gone through a series of miscarriages, was able to say through tears, my only comfort in all of this, what I cling to, is that God is good, he is sovereign, he loves me, and he knows my pain. Where did she get that cosmic structure of meaning? She learned it in her regular habitual encounters with God's goodness, sovereignty, and grace in worship. And she learned this and embraced it well before her world caved in. Worship shaped her heart and soul, preparing her in advance for the inevitable suffering that she would experience in this fallen world. Um, two things coming to mind, so I'll try to put them all in one thought. That uh, this, bo this book is not just about music. Right. Even though you're a musician, uh, you're more than that. That it's about... Uh, all that we do in worship, as we might say around here, our liturgy. Uh, but a lot of your target audience isn't really using that word. And I, I feel like maybe one thing that you're responding to coming from more of an evangelical background is simplicity in worship and a lot of the, the songs especially that uh, have been in the past couple decades pretty simplistic, wouldn't you say? Right. Um, and having sort of a more robust emotional um, experience in worship. Can you talk through that a little bit and um, what your hopes are here, especially at a service like the 5 o'clock with the Advent? Uh, yeah, well? definitely. Um, I mean, I, I float in a world where I'm interacting with lots of worship leaders who aren't part of our liturgical tradition. And so um, a lot of the things that I've learned are valuable about what happens and what's articulated and what God does through the liturgy and the word and everything in, in our worship services. I recognize is not present in a lot of other traditions. And so what I try to do positively is ask the questions of how some of those timeless uh, aspects of worship can be translated into worship services whose structure is primarily like this group of songs and then a sermon. Uh, how can we think more Christianly about the arc and shape of what happens in that group of songs? Um, and, and just in general about songs and the way that they work in forming us and in those kinds of environments, because songs are so prevalent and not much else is liturgically, songs have to bear the weight a little bit more of the story of the gospel that's in the worship services uh, that we do, which is why um, I'm here. I really believe in the content of what's in our worship services. And 
Um, I guess part of what I hope as the canon for liturgy and worship at Advent as a whole, not just at our 5 o'clock, but at all our other services, really is to ask the question of how we, who actually have, we've got a lot in our liturgy that's there and ready to feed us. Um, but I've heard from many, and I've heard from our clergy team, it just feels a little lifeless. Like how, do, how do we breathe life into something that's good but feels like we're disconnected from it? Um, and my approach to that is more like a guerrilla warfare. You go into pockets and you teach and pastor pockets of people, and you go through a variety of more um, aggressive tactics of going into particular places. So that's one of the reasons I'm teaching a prayer book class starting next week on Sunday morning is to help us understand why we do what we do and to make that come alive. But it's also um, through helping, I mean, our, our move to the, the nave from that room into that room uh, was motivated pastorally because I and Matt and the others believed that it would, the aesthetic change the room, the ambiance, those are tools that shape us spiritually. Um, and I think everyone can feel it, whether or not we can define it, the difference. And those are the kinds of things that are the strategic things that I think go into the way I think about my job, um, the way I have conversations with Charles and Fred Teardo, who are wonderful examples of people who think pastorally about their roles as choir directors and organists. Uh, and execute and help lead the liturgy and it's how I'm processing with the other clergy. How can, how do we lead this thing with, with heart so that it's kind of like the children are looking up to mom. What do they see when mom is reading this liturgy and reciting this liturgy and how does that affect our heart? So the goal is to just continue at every service to encourage the, the filling of what we already have with heart and meaning, which I think ironically, um, based on the founder of this, this liturgical tradition, Thomas Cranmer, is just straight up his alley. And I feel like uh, a lot of what you're doing is bringing someone like Thomas Cranmer and the sort of Anglican quote-unquote liturgical heritage to, you know, facing towards a more sort of free-form, non-denominational world, and like, that's really cool. What can we also learn from those places, at a place like the yeah. Advent, which... Uh, to a lot of people outside looking in, appears quite traditional. Right. Yeah, I mean, I have conversations. I think people probably thought, some people thought when I was coming in, there's just, oh, I, I've done this before. I've, I've sort of come into a, quote, more traditional church as the, quote, contemporary worship guy. And people had sort of had a lot of conceptions or preconceptions of what they thought I would do. They, some probably thought I was going to come in with a big Marshall stack and electric guitar and melt faces from the chancel and, and destroy everything in my path with we don't even a big know metal riff. Yeah, I know. That's good. I'm glad you don't know what it means. I don't care about that. Um, some, some just thought that I was coming in here to, to be some sort of guns blazing musical overhaul beachhead, you know? Um, and for me, it's uh, I like to listen broadly because I find that when I do when I come back to my own tradition, uh, it, it exposes some things. And I'll tell you that my exposure to worship that's more uh, free and charismatic and maybe mainstream evangelical, like I was at a worship conference two weeks ago in Kansas City, which definitely was of this vein. And they brought me in to like speak at it, which was great. But I also got to experience a lot of these well-known and famous worship artists and leaders leading people. And what I'm just always reminded of in that context is they have the main thing right, which is worship from the heart, you know? 
Uh, and I and ironically, I think Cranmer championed that, and that was the goal of what he wanted to accomplish with the liturgy. And it's ironic that the people who are the direct descendants of Cranmer um, sometimes get accused of having a very heartless worship. Um, and it's always going to be the challenge for us in the liturgical tradition who say the same prayers every week and sing a lot of these old hymns that have language that maybe isn't the language on our tongues to figure out how to be able to say it and pray it from the heart, you know, and to, to make it meaningful uh, day after day and week after week. And um, what I see and hear from those traditions outside of us is a, is a sense that when I come to worship, I'm expecting that God is going to be there in a special way to meet me and to do something to me and to sort of address me in a transformative way. And thankfully, packed into our worship structures and shapes are the words that enable that kind of encounter. Like, we have it already. We don't have to manufacture it like I think so many other places have to. Give it's us there. some of those words. Yeah, uh, right at the beginning, like, we prayed, Almighty God, uh, to whom all hearts are open and no, no secrets are hid, all desires known. I'm going to talk in my class next week about how that's taken from Hebrews 4, uh, where the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And it, it actually slices us to pieces. I, I think that we have this you know, real cute perception of that verse that doesn't have anything to do with what it's saying when it's saying it's a sword. But the word of God is kind of it, – it has two actions. It's there to, to cut us open and there to stitch us up again. And it needs to cut us open because we've created all these layers of barriers between us and God. Uh, and when we pray that prayer, it is as though we're saying, as I step into worship, I recognize that this is going to come a place where God's word does a, a killing word on me. Uh, opens up my heart in such a way where I'm bleeding out. And there's no other path to the gospel than through death. Uh, it's not that I need a little improvement or, you know, cosmetic work. I need death and resurrection. And when we pray that prayer at the beginning, Cranmer is basically saying, hey, if your heart's not in this thing and you're not ready to sort of lay it on the table for God to kill and replace with something totally new, you're, you're really not seeing what worship is all about. And it just – you see heart stuff addressed time and again. Like uh, the way the liturgy works is always bringing us back to that place where – we're sort of exposed and needing something and lifting our hand up. Well, why don't we do uh, your second reading, and then if anybody has, maybe we take a couple questions from folks here. Yeah, so this, uh, this reading is from my chapter called The Worship Pastor as Mortician. Um, In the pages of some Pages of 134 and 135. And I'm going to read starting from about halfway down, but... This metaphor, which is very morbid, <laughs> is the idea that one of our jobs is to help people uh, remember that worship helps prepare us for our encounter with literal death. That you and I, every week as we come into worship, are being faced with the fact that we're all going to die apart from Jesus coming. And we live in a culture right now that doesn't want us to know that. Um, and that's, that's not seeker-sensitive, folks. Like, that's something that God just says, but isn't, you know, it's not going to give you warm fuzzies when you step into the door. Hey, everybody, by the way, I just want to remind you, we're all here to remember that we're going to die. Like, who's going to come to a worship service like that, right? Um, and so here's a little bit of it. <clears throat> Though we've done all we can to distance ourselves from death, we can't hide from our fear of it. 
Death is the unspoken anxiety of North American culture. It prompts much of our odd, airbrushed, death-denying obsessions, from CrossFit to Botox to gated communities to GMO phobia. Our people bring all those fears right into the services that we plan and lead. Each week, death is the biggest elephant in the sanctuary. The Christian faith offers answers to the plague of death. Death, ushered into the world by sin in the first Adam, is undone by the work of the second. Quote, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. God tells us that our earthly death, death is not the end, that dying is not a wall, but a doorway. Because of this, Christians can look death in the face and rather pompously taunt with Paul, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Jesus declawed death at the cross, and all death can do now is paw us into eternity. A Christian view of death is part of a bigger picture of how everything will end, what theologians call eschatology. Usually we think of eschatology, if we think of it at all, in the context of end-time scenarios where we're left behind or raptured away. But eschatology is far more than a schedule of events. A biblical view of the end is rooted in Christ's ultimate defeat of death and evil and his full and final redemption and recreation of the world, a new heavens and a new earth. This eschatological vision is wonderfully summarized in the words of the Nicene Creed, which we, we spoke tonight. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. As worship planners and leaders, we need to think about how we can present this vision of the future in a way that speaks to the very real and present fears we all bring into worship. The metaphor of mortician, odd as it sounds, is helpful here. Good morticians are skilled in the caring art of preparing bodies for burial. And I believe that a worship pastor is a mortician for the body of Christ, one who faithfully prepares the church for her encounter with death, not as a final experience of defeat, but with a transition into life everlasting. It's time to get a little mystical. Sci-fi lovers, this is for you. As we think about worship, how worship prepares us for death, let's ponder the wormhole. What's a wormhole? Wormholes are those legendary portals in space speculated by some scientists and exploited in science fiction through which unthinkably long galactic distances can be shortcut in an instant. If a ship travels through a wormhole, in the span of a few seconds it can cross distances that would normally take light years to traverse. Worship is an eschatological wormhole. It shortcuts the gap between our present and God's future. Worship brings the end to us. One of my favorite worship theologians, Jean-Jacques von Allman, says it this way. Worship is par excellence, the sphere in which the future puts forth its buds in the present. Using another metaphor, von Allman says that worship is where the church gets to try on its bridal garments. I love that image. Um, I just love the image that in worship we're re-given we're re a vision of the end where uh, all this sickness and death goes away, where God recreates and makes it new. And you heard it echoed in Matt's sermon today that we actually have a hope to believe in and confess, which is why it was so cool. I don't know if everybody felt it like I did. I wanted to sort of scream the creed halfway we were through it. But right after his message, what can you shout? But I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You know, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's coming again. Like all those things are just sort of pouring out because the word births faith. Awesome. Um, 
Good stuff. Uh, some questions, maybe, and I'll repeat uh, the question if you have one. Yeah, Brandon. Hey, Zach, when you talk about uh, the concept of worship, maybe I missed it, but, um, you know, in conservative evangelical backgrounds where I come from, worship is, we're doing worship, that's the scene. Right. Is that all there is to worship, or we yeah. So I'll repeat the question uh, from more conservative evangelical backgrounds. When you hear worship, uh, people think of uh, music and singing. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'll, I'll address it historically first, very briefly. But I'll just say, if you want to understand where a lot of the evangelical church is at and why it got this way, such that it thinks of, like, worship is the musical part, and then there's preaching. You know, the evangelical liturgy is worship and preaching. That's how they name it. And worship equals singing. Go back to the Second Great Awakening, the uh, 1800s, and study what happened there. And you will see that we are direct descendants of the decisions made, the pragmatic decisions made about what worship is and does in that era. And we are Warm up act. What? Warm up act. Worship is, you know, that's where you get the language of worship is supposed to be this sort of a way to warm up the congregation. And music is supposed to be the way to warm up the congregation before you know the preacher delivers some sort of gut-wrenching thing where people on the anxious bench have some crisis of faith and are able to come to Jesus for the 51st time. You know, um, and that model has has birthed children and grandchildren and had descendants. And that concept, I think, has really shrunk our view of worship. And so, what I try to do on the front end of the book is for people who are in our boats of being worship leaders and thinking of themselves, I'm a worship leader, therefore I'm only a musician and pick songs and lead them is to um, expand, re-expand that worship is really every aspect from the time it begins until it ends, and that that as we engage in it, uh, and I, you know, the one thing I try to pick on is that even the sermon can be a real charismatic experience in the sense of it's not just teaching. Like I really don't, I've, I've come to really abhor calling the sermon teaching. Like when a so a congregant might come up to a pastor and say, that was a great teaching you did. They don't understand what a sermon is, which is an, yet another instance where God kills and makes alive. It's supposed to actually feel more like heart surgery than it is teaching. you know. Uh, and so I try to describe sermon as a worship experience. I try to describe coming to the table as a worship experience where God is actually doing stuff in us and on us and, and through us. And addressing us with these two words of law and gospel, those kinds of things. And then singing and praying as well. Like So what I try to do is, is help re-expand something that really was only developed in the last 200 years of what worship was. Any other questions? Yeah, Dan. Zach, would you mind speaking to the issue of who is the audience during the worship what we call worship. Yeah. So I'll repeat the question. Can you speak to who is the quote-unquote audience when we're worshiping? Right. Um, I mean, in our day and age, it's a, it's a really difficult word because it's loaded with um, performance and concertism. Um, he's asking, yeah, he's asking the question of who the audience is. I, I, I would say I, the first answer is God, sort of. Except God is not passive in worship. That's what I find dangerous about, you know, our responses often to say, because, you know, we don't want the congregation to sort of view themselves as passive receptors of some concert that goes up. 
which is ironically a very medieval Roman way of thinking about worship. Ironically. Okay, I'll, yeah. So um, thinking of what goes on up here as something that's performing for me or doing something where I sit passively and just kind of enjoy it like I would enjoy a movie or enjoy a rock show or enjoy a, a classical music performance. Any of those things are really sort of contrary to what God has for us in worship. And so people in response say, in worship, we're not the audience, God is. And I'd say, but that also can be problematic too, only because God is very active. And though God is receiving our praise and receiving, and he is the object of our, of our worship, what I try to teach in some of the worship classes I teach is he's actually also the subject in us and through us. God fills us with his Holy Spirit and actually gives us the gift of worship, um, which is why I actually love how scriptural our liturgy is, because it it forces us to go, even these very words that I respond to you with, God, are your words. You've given them to me, you know? Uh, and so maybe the better uh, word and choice to use are that God is both subject and object of worship, and I find myself in the middle of his actions and drawing me into his Trinitarian life and all that kind of gooey stuff. So, uh, final question for you. Uh, uh, so, you were at Coral Ridge, which by earthly standards for uh, worship pastors, looks like a great gig. You just wrote this book, published by Zondervan, which is a well-recognized publishing house. And now you've got this awesome job at the Cathedral Church of the Advent. Um, uh, my, my new favorite question to ask folks when I'm interviewing them is, what's your unrealized project? Mm. Mm. And you can take that wherever you want. Yeah. Um, I think it is forming as I'm here. Uh, I definitely don't view Cathedral Church of the Advent as a project. But I, I think there, that God is forming and shaping a 10 to 20 year vision for what he wants to do in our church. And I feel like maybe the best answer to the question is, I'm learning what that is in community with you and you as we do this thing at the five o'clock and as I teach this prayer book class on, on Sunday morning and hear, hear the way people, you know, what comes out of their heart when they say, I, I just feel like, you know, when I hear them say, I feel like worship's dead and I want it to be alive again, there I see my project. Not a person, but there I see the pastoral vision of what's next. And um, I, I think that every everything that I might do, like write a book, comes out of that. Um, and I've actually been around. It's scary because when you write a when you write a book and you do this, it tends to, and especially because it's with a publishing house that'll get sort of this content into places that I don't normally have influence. Uh, it just sort of expands my ability to speak into those places. And as a result, I mean, my wife and I have talked about this, I'll probably get more invitations to come talk and speak at places. And I've seen firsthand how that erodes your soul and erodes your ministry and destroys your life when you start reading your own press and you start thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. And when you start using the church as a platform for what you really want to do, you know, as opposed to loving the local church. 
uh, and God, God help me if I ever do that. And so, I, I guess all my projects tend to come in and out of, and I always want to be from here, from wherever I'm at. And I'm just a guy that tries to bloom where I'm planted. And so I guess my unrealized project is Cathedral Church of the Advent and what it's going to do to me and what we're going to do together over the next 20 years. That's awesome. Um, someone, uh, this is in the first issue of the magazine, I asked somebody about the city of Birmingham. What it is that's so great about the, the city of Birmingham that I like so much when I was new here. And he said, the thing that's great about Birmingham, this is David Fleming, by the way, he's the director of Rev Birmingham. He said, uh, Birmingham uh, is big enough that it can matter in the world, but it's small enough that you can matter in it. And I think there's something in your answer that the Cathedral Church of the Advent is big enough that it can matter to the world, and it's small enough that, that you can matter in it. Um, and the great thing about what you're doing here is, uh, with a book like this, is, is taking that message and, and bringing it outside of our own walls, but we get to reap the benefits on a, on a weekly basis. What do we have to say to Zach? Let's thank him. Well, um, you know, I don't care whether you're a worship pastor or not, buy the book uh, and get him to sign it. Uh, he's number three on rites and ceremonies subcategory in Amazon right now. So let's right. bring it up to number one. And it's probably out of like two books. So. <laughs> uh, just so you know, some upcoming events. Uh, the next kind of forum like this after the five o'clock will be Sunday, November 6th at 6 p.m. again with supper. Gerald Bray, who's a, a professor at Beeson Divinity School and elsewhere, uh, a well-known scholar of sort of many different fields is going to come and talk to us about the 39 articles of religion uh, from our own tradition. Uh, so again, that's November 6th. And uh, just so you know, we have our lessons and carol service coming up in Railroad Park in December on December uh, 18th at 5 p.m. In the, on the 17th Street Plaza in Railroad Park. I hope you'll mark your calendars and come to that. Um, we're also doing an art exhibition that I'm curating at a museum in Hansville, uh, Alabama, in the Col uh, Coleman area. Uh, the Evelyn Burroughs um, Museum is a part of the State College up there. A photographer named Fadi Bukaram, who's from Lebanon, and an artist named Joe Corey, who's a professor at Sanford University, are the artists. And uh, it's influenced by a lot of what's going on in the Middle East right now. Uh, so I'll be uh, curating an exhibition up there. We don't know the opening date yet for that, but it'll be in February. If you want more information about that stuff, again, the clipboard is on the table where you can buy the book and also find out more information about these events. Uh, feel free to stick around, eat the rest of the food, and uh, talk to Zach. Thanks so much for coming out. Let's give him a round of applause again. Thanks. <laughs>